0: people on the floor otherwise. Um, Our text, in case you want to use your own Bible, is first chapter of Colossians, starting in verse 7. Before I get started, I wanted to give a little tribute to a dear friend of mine who passed away a week ago Sunday, a week ago today. He's 86 years old, his name was H. Norman Wright. Um, You may or may not know of him as an author. Uh, He was very well known in marital counseling, premarital counseling. In fact, I recalled when I was talking with Lisa about this, is that when Lisa and I were engaged, we went through a booklet, or a workbook of his, called Before You Say I Do, and Little did I know that later in my career, a book that was very helpful to us, I would get to work with that author. As you may know, I work in the publishing business as a literary agent and I worked with Dr. Wright for a long time. As his ministry grew, it changed and became more focused on grief. And Mardette's uh, organization that, for our church here called GriefShare. Was founded by H. Norman Wright and I was talking uh, to a variety of people this week who have known him for a long time. Harvest House Publishers has published a book by H. Norman Wright for 46 consecutive years until last year when he could no longer write. That's Extraordinary if you think about it his first book was in 1969 called help. I'm a camp counselor and Because <laughs> he was part of the founding of Lake Hume With his mentor Henrietta Mears if that name means anything to any of you so you kind of see the, the the legacy of the generation to generation to generation and to be able to, be, to, to know him. I mean, the last conversation I had with him, and at that point, his mental capacities were not all there. He was still talking about revising his book, Communication Key to Your Marriage, because these young people, they don't do things the same way. And it's like, Norm, you are amazing. Uh, so he will be missed. And I just wanted to say that to you. Can Oh, that's right. When it came to grief counseling, and especially um, extreme uh, trauma, like Columbine, like the Oklahoma City bombings, like mass shootings all over the country, those organizations would call him, and he would fly out and minister to the families and the people who were behind. When there were bank robberies in Long Beach or in LA, the banks would call him because he had such an extraordinary warm heart. And one of my fond memories of him is that whenever you would talk to him in person, you start the conversation and he would just kind of pause and stare deeply into your eyes and saying, How are you doing?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And if you asked him in return, he would deflect. <laughs> You see, he wrote this little book, Experiencing Grief, which I think is one that you guys hand out periodically to those who are in grief. He wrote that in 2004, not knowing in 2007 he would lose his wife. And three years later, he would lose his daughter. And so the very book he wrote ended up ministering even in his own life. Anyway, so just wanted to give that to you. Uh, Since you're a captive audience, you have to listen to my meanderings. Colossians chapter 1. Now, we did the first six verses last week as a just kind of a, a preliminary deep dive into Paul's introduction to the letter. Now, Paul's uh, typical um, <coughs> composition style is never to attack the issue from the first sentence. So most of his letters have an issue that he's trying to address. But what you find in the first third, half, two thirds even of a letter is a foundation of theology. And upon that foundation, he then addresses the issue. I think that's a lesson for all of us. We tend to ignore theology saying it's too hard. It's too complicated. I can't grasp it all. So I'm just going to give up. But let me talk about the issues. Look, you can't talk about issues unless you have a grounding in the theology of Scripture. You just can't. There's, you don't have a, a grasp Of the totality of scripture. And Paul is doing that here. Last week in in our our lesson. We went through about 10 different singular words. That if you put them together. They they express the entirety of the Christian life. And the entirety of Christian theology. And they're all found in the first six verses. Well he doesn't stop at verse 6. However. We ran out of time. And so. We were coming to verse 7 of uh, the first chapter of Colossians. And in in the handout, you'll notice I have verses 7 and 8. And then I jump to chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. I do that on purpose to uh, identify and focus on the individual that Paul is talking about. So rather than talking about Epaphras once today, and then talking about him again at the end of the chapter, let's talk about him today and pull it all into one thing. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. I'm going to start with the last few words of the last verse I just read. Laodicea and Hierapolis, for those of you who weren't here in our introduction to the book of Colossians, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis are like the tri-cities in a tiny valley less than 10 miles apart. Laodicea is one of the churches of, the seven churches of Revelation. So it was an important city. Colossae is only mentioned here. It's not even mentioned in the book of Acts. We have this town that has its own letter, but in history was overwhelmed by the riches and the reputation of Laodicea and Hierapolis because they were on a better road in the trade routes. Colise was kind of off to the side. And in fact, I repeat myself, for those of you who are not here, Colise ended up disappearing. In fact, you can't find it today. It's just a big green hill in the middle of a valley. There's nothing there, and it's never been excavated. The um, country of Turkey has denied every attempt of the archeologists to dig into that big mound, but it's forgotten to history. And yet we have this extraordinary letter. But the founder of this church is Epaphras. So remember, Paul never visited Colossae as far as we know. He may have you know, stopped at the Motel 6 during a trip, but more than likely, he went to Laodicea. That would have made more sense. It was a nicer city, easier to get to, bigger access, those kinds of things. Now, in case you're wondering, because I know this is the question that's on everyone's mind. This Epaphras is not the Epaphroditus of Philippians 2, verses 25 to 30. And I know you are all wondering that. (laughs) Because if you go over to Philippians, it talks about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is a long form of a shortened nickname of Epaphras. They're not the same person just in case you ever get tripped up on that. I even wrote in my notes, I know you're all thinking and really concerned about this. <laughs> just, scholars get all get all aflamed about it. and I, I do make the joke that many master's theses have been written to defend that. Most likely, Epaphras heard Paul preach in Ephesus. Ephesus is a hundred miles to the east. It's the big famous city on the the coast of turkey asia minor back then he was likely converted during that time and took the gospel message home where he then founded this church later on we don't know why he went to rome to visit with paul paul is in prison He meets with Paul in prison, and for all we know, Epaphras did something, and ends up getting thrown in jail with, with Paul. Because in Philemon, verse 23, it says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. So somehow he got arrested, thrown into jail, and he's probably going, score! I get one on one time with Paul. This is so cool. Maybe he did something on purpose. Maybe he jaywalked. But more likely, he was probably out on the streets preaching and somebody took offense. But while they're there, they talk. He tells Paul of his church and the people in the community in Colossae and the troubles that are in the church so Paul writes this letter to them and then he makes a few comments about Epaphras and let's look at those comments you'll see them in the text it starts actually in verse 6 which you don't have in your handout that's why you always have your Bible with you It says, which has come to you indeed, the whole world is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, which meant they heard this from Epaphras. Epaphras was a evangelist. He was spreading the word. I had actually stopped in my studies and I went through one of these um, thought experiments where you try to imagine something. Imagine you're a Epaphras, you have been in Ephesus, you are now on fire for Christ, and you go home, and you are preaching and evangelizing a town who knows you, who grew up with you, and who now think you are nuts Because you're talking about some guy who was raised from the dead. He's the first evangelist into a town. Imagine being that person. And the strength of character it would take. It's hard enough. In our modern world. In the workplace. In the classroom. Anywhere you are to preach boldly about Christ. They think you're nuts. And they are not friendly. Very similar to what Epaphras was facing. And yet, he stuck with it. It says that he was a teacher. You see this in verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras. He was also beloved. Notice it says, Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. And so I thought, wait a second. Paul uses the word beloved fairly regularly. It's about 30 times in all of his letters. So I just, one of my many rabbit trails, I decided to look up every time that Paul mentions someone by name and calls them beloved. That's different than just a general... (coughs) You know, you are my beloved. Okay, fine. You're just being nice. But what if he's using the honorific specifically to someone? And so I looked them all up. Romans has four of them. At the very in, the, in chapter 16, he mentions Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. That's in Romans 16.5. Ampliatus, 16.8. Stachys. 16.9 and Persis 16.12 these will all be on the test next week <laughs> <laughs> he mentions two other people who are very famous in the New Testament I'm now going to stump the class and see if you can name them who else does Paul call beloved Yeah, Priscilla, hmm?
1: yeah. Priscilla. Yeah. Priscilla and Paul Priscilla nope oh. Philemon?
0: Yes, that's one. So actually, that would make three. So that's, that was a cheat.
1: <laughs>
0: but there's two that are even more famous than Philemon. Barnabas? No, nope, not Simon. Is Luke?
1: Timothy?
0: Luke is the beloved physician. And there's one other one Timothy. Timothy. Oh, yeah. He calls Timothy his beloved Timothy twice. In both, uh, let's see, 1 Corinthians 4.17 and in 2 Timothy 1.2. It's in Colossians 4.14 where he calls t- Luke, the beloved position. In addition, we have Philemon and Onesimus both in the book of Philemon are mentioned with the word beloved. And then also you have Tychius, T-Y-C-H-I-C-U-S, is both in Ephesians 6 and in Colossians 4. And then we have Epaphras. This makes Epaphras unique in the, I don't know, the relationship. The fact that Paul would introduce him back to his own people with an honorific of beloved means he really likes the guy and is reminding his church that he's a special leader. It also <clears throat> you keep going in verse 7, he is faithful. He's a faithful minister. Faithful meaning trustworthy, constant. He wasn't all over the place. He wasn't inconsistent. <clears throat> he would be there every week at every meeting. Then, he's also called a servant. In, in, uh, again, in verse 7, you see fellow servant, and then down in chapter 4, verse 12, a servant of Christ Jesus. This is the Greek word for slave. We, have not, we, we tend to change the word because in our English translation, the word slave has different connotations and so we we kind of shy away from it but this is the greek word it's not a bad thing it's a great thing he declares himself and presents himself as a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ just as Paul identifies himself then you see in 4:12b that he is a committed intercessor he's always Praying on your behalf, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Imagine again when Epaphras is with Paul, all he ever talks about are his people, not about himself. Because Paul observed him praying. How would he know that he's always praying on behalf of his people because they prayed together I think that's an incredible picture and he's a prayer warrior it says he struggles in that fight he's wrestling with the challenges that he's facing with these folks and he has this earnest desire for them that they may stand mature This is again verse 12. Stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And then lastly, he's a hard worker. I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. As I wrote in my notes, I just said, Epaphras is no longer anonymous to us now. You cannot ignore his name the next time you come across it. He may not be in the Hall of Fame in Hebrews, but he certainly has a role in the kingdom that should be an example for us. He was a (coughs) a worker in the church, but we don't ever talk about him. He's kind of skipped over when we study Colossians. Oh, it's another one of those names that I don't know who he is. Now you do. And isn't that fun? So, we keep going. And oh, by the way, I had to make uh, a mention. I saw in the bulletin in this morning's service that next week's text is first chapter of colossians verses 3 through 14. so because we will have studied it you can critique next week's sermon perfectly (laughs) it's usually the other way around where i'm coming into it going oh my goodness we just heard a whole sermon on today's topic and it's never uh, you know we always accuse uh pastor jim and i of being in cahoots but there have been how many times, at least a dozen times, where the text of the morning sermon is the text that we're, we're talking about here, and it's not never planned. It's just kind of amazing. All right, let's go into the text. Now, as a bit of an introduction, a lot of people, when they study Colossians chapter 1 speed read the first 14 verses and then get to verse 15 because that's where the good stuff begins because in verse 15 and on is talking about the preeminence of Christ and it's a glorious passage. I am terrified to be teaching it next week because it is such an extraordinary passage but at our risk, we skip over the preamble. Verses nine to 14 is one sentence in the Greek. It's one sentence. We break it up in our English so that it makes a little more sense for us, but in the Greek, it's one continuous sentence with no period. Most scholars believe that you can read this verses nine to 14 as a prayer. And I would I wouldn't disagree with that and what I'm gonna do here I'm gonna read it out loud and because you have the text in front of you I want you to read along with me but before I start reading fix someone in your mind as the subject of this prayer because you will be praying it as I read it for that person. You don't have to tell me who it is, it can be anybody. But think of it as a prayer for an individual as I read. And so from the day we heard. with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I came across a a writer who had said there was a relative of his who prayed this specifically with his name in it for his entire life. And when that relative passed away, he said he felt the loss of the daily prayer. These words, you could pray these words for someone, individually if you'd like. Well, I'll tell you, seeing extra chairs being brought out, that's really cool. For those of you who have been in this class for 17 years, and there are some of you who have, there are days when we would have four people in this room. So this is quite a change. Um, I hope the Lord's work and word blesses each of you. So, verse 9. And so from the moment we heard, from the day we heard, from the very beginning, we have not ceased to pray for you. Huh. You know, we always talk about unceasing prayer. And um, it seems impossible. But there was one writer, I didn't, I didn't, I'll pull out the quote here, I didn't write it down, I'm trying to remember it. But this is its essence. Written by a Quaker. And a this this Quaker writer basically said, the idea of unceasing prayer, it's almost as if you, you live in two different planes. You live on the plane in which you're interacting with people. It's, you know, it's tangible, it's tactile. But if you have a life of prayer, it's a secondary plane where your spirit is always in prayer as you're interacting with other people. Because otherwise, I wouldn't be able to have a conversation with you. Because you're not God, so we're not gonna be talking a whole lot because I'm always in prayer. No, it's an attitude of prayer, a prayerfulness that's constant. But as I brought up earlier, imagine Paul and Epaphras talking to each other and Epaphras is constantly talking about the people that he is responsible for and not about himself. In our TikTok culture, we tend to turn the camera on us. And God is asking you to reverse the camera on your iPhone. So it's pointing outward, not inward. For those of you who are not technologically advanced, <laughs> ask one of the others in the room, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, but there is that problem of about all about me. And unfortunately, that is a very weak place to start. I'll get to that in a moment. But the ancient church father Chrysostom—he was around what 150 A.D. So he was a long time ago. He wrote this about prayer: the potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire, it has bridled the rage of lions, hushed arnarchy, anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the fates of heaven, assuaged diseases, dispelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the product progress of a thunderbolt. In prayer, there is an all-sufficient panoply, a treasure undiminished, a mind that is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root, the fountain, and the mother of a thousand blessings. That is what prayer is. And what I just described is all biblical examples of the power of prayer. And we tend to forget how to wield it. I was reminded, again, I didn't write it down, I've actually memorized this one, but it's from Annie Dillard in her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. She says, when we are in worship, do we have any idea of the power we so blithely invoke? The ushers should issue crash helmets, they should lash us to our pews, for God may wake and take offense. Think of that for a second. When we're sitting there, you know, in the service, and like, he's sure talking a long time, and God's going, "Ah, "We're talking about me here." A. W. Tozer said, "If you are bored in worship, you're not ready for heaven." That's a nice one to remember. But what is he praying for? He's asking that you might be filled. I'm going to stop there for a second. Let's meditate on the word filled for a second. If you are full, there's no room for anything else. Right? So if you are full of the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, there's no room in your life for all the hullabaloo and evil and anything to take you away from it. That's the prayer. The prayer is that we will be filled with God, with Him. So our prayer and our seeking God's face is to fill us with Him. Don't lose that metaphor. And he's asking to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And this is a preamble to the error that is in the church. Because there were those in that congregation that were talking about wisdom or Sophia in a secular sense and applying it to Christianity and tearing down who Christ was. So that's why he starts with this. So I'm praying that you are filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, um, I could go on for a long, long, long time about what is knowledge. But I'll try to synthesize the various pieces that I've come across. The first one is an aphorism that is fairly well established. Because some people will say, well, what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Aren't they the same thing? No. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. Think about that for a second. Oh, let's make a fruit salad. Let's put some tomato in it. You're not going to have many people over for Thanksgiving if you do that. <laughs> the knowledge of his will in spiritual wisdom. That adjective spiritual is very important here. We're not talking about worldly wisdom. We are talking about the wisdom of the spirit. The pneumatikos. And pneuma is the word spirit, so pneumaticus is to be guided by the spirit. Henry Blameyers, in his book, The Christian Mind, says that the Christian mind has succumbed to the secular drift with such a degree of weakness and nervelessness unmatched in Christian history. As a thinking being, the modern Christian has succumbed to secularization. He accepts religion, its morality, its worship, its spiritual color, culture, but he rejects the religious view of life, the view that sets all earthly issues within the context of the eternal. The view which sees all things here below in terms of God's supremacy and earth's transitoriness in terms of heaven and hell. The Christian mind is a mind trained, informed, and equipped to handle data of secular controversy within a framework of reference which which is constructed of Christian presuppositions. The Christian mind is a prerequisite of Christian action. Think about that for a second. Just let that, you know seep in and think of your own processes and how you've been trained by our education system, by our world by our media on how to think we very rarely take this little guy and use it as the prerequisite we are saying, oh that's nice but we need to find out what the stoics said because they knew what they were talking about We need to find out what the existential philosophers said. Because they're more interesting than this. And I will count myself among those. I studied the great thinkers and the great researchers because what they say sounds so interesting. But when you start applying it to scripture, over the years, you end up... Discarding this little bit, and that little bit, and this little bit, and you're realizing, man, it's all based on lies. And not on the truth. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, starts with this sentence. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And then there's a period and you think, oh, wait a minute, didn't Steve just say we should not be looking at ourselves? And well, that's a contradiction, John Calvin says. But then he elaborates. It is certain that people never achieve a clear knowledge of themselves unless they have first look upon God's face. And then, descends from contemplating God, and scrutinizing self. If you start there, if you're seeking God's face, if God is preeminent, and you are filled with Him, then when you turn to yourself, you suddenly realize You kind of need a little grace in your life because, my goodness, I'm not worthy. No, you're not. And neither am I. But in the grace of God, we have become worthy. And that's brought out in our text as we go forward. But I thought I would take a uh, discursus, a uh, side note. And you can see I hand wrote it on my yellow pad because I couldn't help myself. Um, Because when you start thinking about knowledge and this idea of seeking the will of God, we talked about it a little bit last week, you know, what is that? And it it seems such um, an ineffable, hard-to-define topic. And we Westerners don't like things that can't be defined. We resist it. So we try our darndest to explain it and then fail or end up with 30 different opinions about what that is. And then we all start shouting at each other and then starting our own churches. (laughs) That's just kind of how we roll. It's craziness underneath, I think, within this, I shouldn't say underneath, but maybe integrated with this, is the concept of discernment. How do you know? How can you discern what's this and what's this? There's a quote I gave you guys last week, and I'll repeat it. Charles Spurgeon said, Discernment is not just knowing right and wrong. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. And that's where we run into trouble. It sounds so entrancing. It's just about right, and so it must be true, because we have not learned how to discern. First Thessalonians five twenty one: Test everything, and hold fast to what is good. Think about it this way: If Satan can be an angel of light, Second Corinthians eleven four. We need discernment. Because it can look bright and shiny and wonderful. But if we can't discern that, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't coming off right. 2 Timothy 2.26 talks of the snare of the devil. So let's think about the word snare. What is a snare? Anybody? Trap. It's a trap. And hunters use it to... Does the hunter have to be there? No. No. And that's the whole point. It's kind of a it's you know, it's a very guy thing for me to do it this way, but in my mind, the devil's snare is the IED in the road of life. Improvised explosive device. It looks fine, the road looks clear, our poor soldiers for these last million years, it seems like, are having to sweep the roadside because that little pile of rocks blows someone's leg off. It's a snare. And until you start knowing what to look for, you can walk right into it. And that's all part of discernment. You start seeing, huh, that that, that doesn't look right. 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So how do we do this? First, I call it the diligent study of God's Word. Now, that seems like a wonderful little, you know, uh, cliche. But let me ask it in another way. What is the longest chapter in the Bible? Psalm Psalm 119. 176 verses about God's Word. It's all about God's Word. The longest chapter in the entire Bible is about the Bible. Hmm, Maybe that should be a clue. And I find it's kind of interesting. You start reading Psalm 119 and I'm like the rest of you. After about the 29th or 40th verse you're kind of going, dude, you're repeating yourself. Could you, you know, kind of change the topic? And God's going, you're not getting it, are you? Mm -hmm. If you come to that point, you've missed the point. The point is that the Word of God is so central. And I wrote it this way. We need to search the Scriptures again and again and again and again until it is so familiar it feels like breathing you breathe the scripture in, you breathe out the scripture. I wrote that in my notes and then it dawned on me. (laughs) Oh, Steve, you think you're so genius because 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God breathed. I thought I was being clever. I wasn't. I was trying to think of how to express it so that as we run into situations, there's no other way to answer except with Scripture. That helps with our discernment. Obviously, another way to do it is to pray for that discerning spirit. Three verses I found. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He's unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Ephesians 5.10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Hebrews 5.14, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We pray for that spirit. Whenever there is a crime the majority of the time, evidence is left behind. If you ever watch CSI, you know how that documentary show, oh wait, it's not a documentary. (laughs) Uh, But, is that there's always evidence. It can be a simple little hair, it can be, you know, anything innocuous. And I write here, look to your own sinfulness, because often, the crime was committed by you Jeremiah 17:9 the heart is deceitful above all things you think you got it made you think you're doing it right look to your own sinfulness and therefore you understand and the ability to discern what is right and wrong from your own actions And then cleanse your heart through repentance. We prayed it this morning. Forgive us our debts, our trespasses. We just rattle that off. We don't think about what we're saying. Isn't that a shame? Lastly, keep company with discerning people. And not just people of the present, but people of the past through their writing and their teaching. Uh, granted, I'm in the book business, so this is a commercial. Um, but you should be reading, and not just the contemporary people. They're fine, There's many of them are genius writers and have an awful lot to say. But there are those of the past. I mean, I've quoted Chrysostom from the first century. I've quoted Spurgeon from the 19th century. And I've quoted Annie Dillard from the 20th century just so far this morning. You should be keeping company with discerning people like that. But also people of the present who can surround you with wisdom. And not just pastors, but those who live a life of holiness. Ezekiel 44:23 They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane and show them how to distinguish between the clean and the unclean. That's
1: 23.
0: Yeah. That. Ezekiel 44:23. And then 1 John 4:1 Beloved, now this time he's calling us beloved. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets have gone into the world. So why is he praying for all of this? Asking for the knowledge of the will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1.10 2, 6, and 3, 7, all have the word walk. And it's all in a spiritual context. You may not usually think of these verses when you think of walk worthy because it's in Ephesians 4, 1, where it says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And in, for those of you who are here, when Dr. Del was our interim pastor, he would end his his greeting or his time as his uh, benediction. He would say walk worthy. And there was one time where he preached on it and everyone went, oh, that's why you say that all the time. Uh, was it wasn't just some little you know, thing that you would uh, needle point on a pillow. <laughs> that's a joke between us. Uh, she has helped me correct my metaphor. Uh, but you don't just needlepoint something. You live it to walk worthy, to walk in a manner worthy. The word worthy means to have weight, not W-A-I-T, heft, W-E-I-G-H-T, to walk the weight and have be worthy and counted worthy in his eyes, pleasing to God and then bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God and we've already talked about the knowledge of God and how important that is. Now this is an anonymous poem, so maybe you guys can claim who wrote it, but apparently no one knows. And I just thought it was interesting in thinking of the idea of walking in a manner worthy, pleasing to him and bearing fruit. You are writing a gospel a chapter each day by the deeds you do and the words that you say. People read what you write, whether faithful or true. So just what is the gospel according to you? Your life, your walk, your worthy walk is that example that is observed by those around you. And then when you say, I am a believer, I am a follower of Christ, they go, oh, that's why you're different. Not different as meaning wacko, but you are walking worthy of his name and his calling. and to be strengthened, verse 11, with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul again is kind of setting the stage in this verse because the Romans and the Greeks prayed to their gods and performed pagan rituals in order to protect them from evil spirits and to acquire health and wealth. They would get their strength and their endurance and their patience from their gods. And Paul is contrasting that, saying, No, 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 no. This is where it really comes from. And it's a setup. He comes back to this later on. And that's just part of the genius of Paul. Then we come to verse 12, which isn't it ironic? That this is Thanksgiving week, and we have the verse giving thanks to the Father. So, <clears throat> before I expound on this, I have a handout. You want to help me with it? Sure. I think I have enough for everyone. You buy you
1: more paper, Steve? Hmm.
0: I do, uh, uh, put it this way, the study material that I used for preparation today was 120 pages of material I printed out before, so yeah, I use a lot of paper. This particular handout is something very special to me, and Mary Gale might even recognize it, because you had something to do with it. If you need one, I can email you the text. No, no, it's all right. Yeah, we're good. This particular passage, turn to the third page and read the top line. This was originally compiled and presented by Dr. Savage on November 19th. Twenty-eight years ago today, as the sermon on Sunday morning, and at the time, the I was so taken by it. I just it struck me in an extraordinary way that I uh, talked to Pastor Savage, and it just happened to be at that time you were transcribing all of his sermons for um, Andy Liggett who was in prison and who could not get access to the CDs. So you would type these out and then they would be mailed to um, Andy so that he would be able to hear the sermons from Dr. Savage every week. I talked to Dr. Savage and I said, well, what makes this unique, and you already seen because of the last page, that starting in paragraph four, every word here is scripture. Absolutely. Every word. But he couldn't remember all of the verses that there was. And so I asked him if I could dig into it and the reference work was mine. And I created the footnotes and the endnotes. Then I asked him permission if I could use this as a keynote that I would give. And I've done it in many cities around the country when I'm teaching on the deeper life of the Spirit, especially for writers, to reminding them to give thanks. I've also posted it on the agency's blog a couple times, obviously giving Dr. Savage credit. But what I'm giving this to you, I'm not going to read it because we'd be here for 20 minutes because it takes about 15 to 20 minutes to read it out loud properly. Read it out loud to yourself this week. Or if you have a gathering of family, have someone read it to the group. Because as you read the Scriptures, there's nothing like the Word of God. And to hear it presented with this, let's just say, a crescendo as you feel the goodness of God in your life and then the very end is a Glorious expression of thanksgiving to God for everything that he's done. There's nothing quite like it. So this is a Something my guess is that in this room. There's only the five of you that were here then there's a few of you Maybe you guys were here then okay so The other half of the room wasn't born yet (laughs) So this is new to you. (laughs) Seriously, make it a part of your Thanksgiving tradition. In your preparation. It doesn't have to be something that you make a big deal. But this is an extraordinary document. And I want you to have it. We fail to give thanks to God for all of the goodness that he has given to us. We Americans like to complain. How's your day? (laughs) Uh. You have no idea. Oh, I know, me too. this happened, and this happened, and and then we're both sobbing, you know, just, uh, grumble, grumble, grumble. Hey, and that guy over there, he does this. And then we walk away, and never anything good. Why do we do that? And you think, here he is praying to the people to remember to give thanks to the Father. Why? Because he's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Oh my goodness sake. You mean, wait a minute. Now, there's a problem with inheritances, all right? So, you have a, let's say, mid-level wealthy person who dies, and there are 10 heirs. They each get a 10th. Well, okay, thank you very much, that was nice. And you move on. How many people are in heaven, for goodness sake? Everyone that goes up there, I get less. (laughs) until you realize what God is giving you, because He has it all. And it's endless. And so when He gives us the full measure of Christ, an inheritance adopted in His family as heirs, full heirs in Christ, and we go, gee, thanks. No. No. At that moment, it's a worship moment where you fall on your knees and saying, I'm not worthy. No, again, you're not. That's why it's a grace. And it's a gift. And it's an eternal gift. Verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the light, the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Now look at that verse while I'm reading from Acts 26. In Acts 26, Jesus is speaking to Paul because Paul is testifying at that moment about the road to Damascus. And so he's repeating what Christ said to him on the road to Damascus. So look at your text while I read Acts 26-18. I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul's Damascus Road experience is echoed In what he's writing to the Colossians. We never really make that parallel. But those moments, those words were ingrained in Paul. That while he didn't quote it, it certainly feels like he had it so much a part of him that it just came off his mouth and off his pen. So if you still have your handout from last week, we can add to last week's list of words and concepts to filled knowledge, spiritual wisdom and understanding, walk worthy, power, endurance, patience, inheritance, delivered, kingdom and forgiveness. All in these short verses. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for our time together. The extraordinary depth of these seemingly simple words, words that we pass by casually when we're reading a book like this. But we have been given the power to be delivered from darkness and to share the light into a world that is dying around us. Lord, help us to walk worthy of that calling. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.